Well, today, as we continue in this season of longing that is Advent, we come to the amazing story of the birth of John the Baptist, not one that you talk a lot about at Christmas, but absolutely a piece of the Christmas story, as the story of John and the story of Jesus are just so incredibly intertwined. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, well, then you already know some pretty significant things about John the Baptist, and in particular about his conception. So you know, for example, because you know the story, that his mother Elizabeth, prior to this conception, had been barren all of her life, and that his mom Elizabeth and his father Zechariah were both very elderly at the time of this conception. They were beyond childbearing years, as the idea they were doubly barred as the point from having a baby. And yet they have a baby. So it's a supernaturally enabled conception, and it's a supernaturally announced conception as well, because we saw the story in which the angel Gabriel came to Jerusalem, came to the temple, came to Zechariah in the temple and said, hey, yeah, you're going to have a baby. The exact same angel who six months later came to another person in another city, the Virgin Mary in the city of Nazareth, and announced a supernaturally enabled pregnancy to her too, a far more supernaturally enabled pregnancy, one with no real biological explanation, frankly. No man involved in this one is my point. He said, Mary, you too are going to become pregnant, and here's my scientific explanation for you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and so the child to be born to you will be called holy, the Son of God. And then if you were with us as well, then you know that that Mary and Elizabeth are relatives. And so then as soon as Mary conceives the Christ child in her womb, what does she do? She immediately, we saw this last week, goes to see her relative Elizabeth, and she stays with her for three months, which means almost certainly that Mary was present at the birth of John the Baptist that we're going to look at today and that we're going to come to the same way that we've been coming to all of these stories, which is how. We've been coming to these stories in this season of longing, looking for and listening for longings. Why? Because Advent is a season of time in anticipation of Christmas when you and I focus upon our longings and the many ways that we long for the same God that broke through into their real space, into their real time, into their real lives, into their real world to break through except now in ours. And the entry point, the doorway into our longings are the characters in these stories. It's the longings of these people, which is, on one sense, I think kind of difficult for us to understand because we look at these people and they lived in the first century, so she's a first century Jewish lady. He's a first century Jewish man. He's a priest. I mean, it's like there are so many things that are different between us and them, language, culture, technology, all kinds of stuff that are different. Here's the one thing that isn't different, and this is why it always works. The human heart never changes, ever. It's one of the lessons of history, it's one of the lessons of Scripture, and it's been made by God and to be satisfied in Him. He knows better than anybody what all of our longings are, and He alone can meet them. When we come to these people, there are so many things that separate us from them. I get that. But here's what we're united to them in. We're united to them in our humanity, and in their longings, we find our longings. And the way that it works is, is when we see their longings, the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, hey, you know what? That, that's, that's your longing too. And the longings that we're going to see in this story today are found in Zechariah's song. He sings, and it's poetic. And there are two images that I want you to look for. One is that of a horn, and the other is the image of light. 
So we pick up our study today in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57, where Luke, the author of this great book and of this great story, says this. He says, Now the time came for Elizabeth, this mother of John the Baptist, to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy on her, that He had come and delivered her from her barrenness and from all of the stigma in the first century that was attached to that. This is a big deal. And the whole community of people here know, A, that she was barren, and B, that they're not, you know, the right age folks to have kids. Everybody recognizes there's something special about this kid. It's a supernaturally enabled conception. So they get that God has intervened. The Lord has shown great mercy to Elizabeth. And so they rejoiced with her exactly as the angel Gabriel had told Zechariah that they would. But now notice this. It says, and they, and this doesn't just mean Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. This means, and they, this whole group of people, family, community, neighbors, everybody in the village who were rejoicing already over the birth of this child, they also showed up at the circumcision of this child on the eighth day, and they, by custom, would have participated in the naming of the child, which would have occurred at the circumcision, and they had a very strong opinion as to what he should be named. It says, and they, meaning those people, would have called him Zechariah after his father. So they handed out ballots, you know, and everybody voted, do you want Zechariah or do you want what his mother wants? They all went Zechariah. They think that she should not name him something else, and she disagrees. His mother Elizabeth answered and said, no, and look, she's not taking votes. She's tearing him up. She says, I'm the mom, and here's the deal. He shall be called John, but they're not willing to accept that. And so they argue with her, and they appeal to the father. They say, none of your relatives is called by this name, John. And so they made signs, that's curious, to his father, Zechariah, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So they're trying now to trump her, but they're having to do it in sign language. Why? Well, when you rewind the tape to that angelic visitation to Zechariah, when, when the angel said, hey, I, I know this is going to sound difficult to believe, but your wife, barren all her life, and I know you guys are, you know, it's beyond the childbearing thing, you're going to have a baby unlike Mary who believed the angel's announcement. Zechariah didn't. And God struck him mute. He couldn't speak, but not just mute. As we see here, he was stricken deaf. Zechariah spends nine months in silence, not being able to hear a word and not being able to speak a word for rejecting God's Word. And I think he spends it in God's Word, as we'll see it play out in his song. So they're arguing with, you know, Elizabeth over what John ought to be named. And so they come to Zechariah and they, you know, do the sign language thing to him. And so Zechariah asked for a writing tablet because he also can't speak, and he wrote, and I love this, his name is John, period, that's it. No more conversation about that. And they all wondered in amazement, and then immediately Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue, it says, was loosed. And his ears, no doubt, also began to work again, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. They're in awe 
And all of these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea, and you would think that they would be. And all who heard these things laid them up in their hearts. They pondered them again and again and again. Wondering is the idea, saying, what will this child be? His birth is is supernatural. It's attended by miracles. It's announced by an angel. There are all of these things going on, the promise of this great life. For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then here's what Zechariah sang. His mouth is opened. And it says his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning what he says is God's word. That's the idea. And he says, blessed be the Lord of Israel. And here's why he's blessed. For he has visited and redeemed his people. And here's how he's visited and redeemed us. He has raised up a what? Because here's the first image, a horn of salvation. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, and here's where. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke again and again and again and again in the Old Testament Scriptures by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, and I think that is where Zechariah has been spending his nine months of silence. But the house of David piece is important. And the reason that it's important is because it identifies who Zechariah is singing about, because, I mean, you know, look, his son's just been born. You think he's singing about him, and he's not. Zechariah is not from the house of David. Elizabeth is not from the house of David. Do the math on that. John the Baptist, therefore, is not from the house of David. But there is someone from the house of David who's living, albeit in utero, in Zechariah's house and who has been there for the last three months. Clearly, the horn of salvation that he's talking about is none other than Jesus himself. What's not clear is what the horn of salvation is. What does it mean? Because in it are found the longings. Here's what it's not. It's not a reference to a musical instrument. It's not a horn that you blow on. It's the horn of an animal. That's what it's a reference to. And the horn of an animal is its offensive weaponry, and it's a defensive weaponry as well, is it not? And not only that, but beyond that, I mean, these fully developed horns on a big, huge buck, for example, are what make it look kingly, that what make it look majestic. And so what happens in the Bible with these people who see these animals and deal with them a whole lot more than we do is the horn of an animal becomes symbolic of power and of strength, and not just of power and of strength, but, but of kingly power and of kingly strength. And horn of salvation is a phrase used only twice in the Old Testament, which was the only Bible Zechariah had. The New Testament came later, and both times it's used solely in reference to God. So what, what Zechariah is saying here is that this Christ child who's been living in his house in utero for three months inside of Mary, okay, this Christ child is none other than God himself who is clothing himself in our humanity inside of this girl's womb and who has come into the world to bring the kind of salvation that only God in his power, that only God in his strength, that only God from his position can bring. And what kind of salvation is that? It's the kind that we're longing for. Listen, he tells us, verse 71, he says, that we should be saved by this horn of salvation, who is Jesus, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And now notice what he ties all this salvation to. He ties it to God's promises. That's something to be thought about and even considered from Zechariah's perspective. To show forth the mercy promised. To who? To our fathers, Zechariah says. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that God swore to our father Abraham to grant us. 
What is Zechariah, who didn't believe the word of God when God originally came to him, but then was stricken deaf and dumb and given nine months of silence to get into God's word, now saying as he blesses the Lord, as his tongue is loose, and as he sees in his own home, really the fulfillment of two angelic announcements. He's saying, my goodness, guys, I, I didn't get this quite so well nine months ago, but our God is a God who keeps his promises. Christmas says he keeps his promises. And and whose promises, well, promises to whom? Because from Zechariah's perspective, he's citing his fathers. He's citing Abraham. He's saying, listen, I just spent nine months pouring through the Scriptures and considering the promises that God made to people who died, in some cases, thousands of years ago, who are living it now. Well, the promise is, inside this girl, inside my house, God keeps His promises. Even when we don't see it in our lifetime, He keeps His promises. And even when we don't see it in our lifetime, knowing that He keeps His promises, knowing should enable us to sing. See, God is not like me, and He's not like you. All of us are limited. I mean, we we make promises, and then we break them all the time. Why? Because we can't always keep them. Hey, I promise to be at your house at 4 o'clock this afternoon. You know, I mean, like, I could write that in blood, you know. I can rearrange my entire world. I can purchase a police escort. I can do all of these things and then have a heart attack at three. Not going to do me any good. God is a God who keeps His promises. And Christmas is a moment of time in Zechariah's day and in our day in which we look back and go, my goodness, look at all of the promises that he made to all of those people. Every single one of us with great detail as you study the gospel stories are kept in this Jesus. And it's a day in which we then look forward and consider the promises that he has yet to fulfill, but that we know because of Christmas that he will. It's a pretty amazing season. And what has he promised? Here are the longings. Well, among other things, that we should be saved by this horn of salvation who is Jesus from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So as you open your Bible on Monday morning and you come to it in personal worship and you begin to remember the Lord and then the next day you you work through it and you're honest with Him about yourself and the next day you, you rest in His grace and so forth and you work it through in anticipation of Sunday and you come to a statement like that, my goodness, we're going to be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. You've got to stop. you got your journal open, I hope, and a pen in your hand and go, okay, well, who are my enemies? Who hates me or what? What do I need to be delivered from? Just start writing stuff down. Sin, pain, death, addiction, loneliness, stress, anxiety, fear, insecurity, a relationship that is totally powerful over me and I have no power over. What? You've got to come to that and say, all right, here's my list, Lord. Throughout the week, you'll start adding, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Thanks, Spirit of God, for reminding me of that one. You'll come back to it the next day, it's like three more things. Oh, whoa, you know, yeah, I need that too. What do we do in this season of longing that is Advent? We bring them to the one who has broken through in Christ and who breaks through today too and who will yet break through again to satisfy all of our longings. 
And you say, yeah, but you know, I mean, if he doesn't do that in my lifetime, a lot of good that does for me. Well, I think Zechariah would say, actually, it should do you a lot of good because Jesus has come and Jesus has lived and Jesus has suffered and Jesus has died and he's been buried and he's risen from the dead and he's ascended to heaven and he reigns over all things, including everything in your life. And he reigns over everything in your life for your good. That is his promise and he keeps his promise. Oh, and his promise is that he'll return as well. His promise is that in this life or in the next... He will deliver you. And so his promises, because they are sure and certain, okay, well, then your deliverance is sure and certain. It is as good as if it's been done. And here's the thing. You'll be raised at the very least to see it. And in that day, you're not going to be disappointed that you didn't see it in your day. So I thought about that this week. I thought about one of the statements that Jesus makes after he grows up in his life and ministry. He says to his adversaries, ironically, He says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Abraham, the person Zechariah is citing here, the one that God made his oath with, the one who had died a long, long time before Jesus was born. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Well, from where? From heaven. And I guarantee you that in that moment, as he saw the wisdom of the Lord and how it played out through those ages leading up until the moment was just right for that first advent of Christ, I guarantee you that Abraham didn't go, well, that's cool, but I really wish it would have happened in my day. He marveled and he rejoiced all the more. And there's really no reason that we ought to think that we would be different. It should allow us to sing, knowing even that it's coming. And so Zechariah longed for the horn of salvation, who is Jesus, and for the kind of deliverance that he alone can bring. But then, secondly, he longed as well, and we'll see this, for the light who is Jesus. He'll call him the sunrise. We'll hear that. And that's the biblical image that I think dominates the second half of this song, which begins in verse 74, and which begins with this. He continues singing. He says in verse 74 that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, either in this life or in the next, by this great horn of salvation who is Jesus, notice how we're to serve Jesus now. Might serve Jesus, the idea is, right now without fear. Got to think about that too. You have to stop and say, all right, but then (laughs) what are my fears? And then play it through in light of Christmas, like in light of Christmas. And and Christmas isn't just a birth message. It's a life message. It's a suffering message. It's a death, burial, resurrection, ascended into heaven, reign over all things message. It's all of these things encapsulated in seed form in the seed that is within Mary at this point in the narrative. It's all of that. Through faith in this Jesus, we are beloved sons and daughters of God who are to find our significance in Him and our security in Him and our identity in Him and the satisfaction of every one of our longings in Him, when you begin to meditate on that and reflect on that and play that through and work our fears through in light of it, you've got to say, my goodness, what in this world do I really, in the final analysis, have to be afraid of? And where I'm afraid, I need Jesus. I need to spend time in silence in His Word like Zechariah that I might learn to serve Him without fear and in holiness and in righteousness before Him all of our days here on this earth. And why? 
because Christ is holy and He is righteous. And as we've talked about this Advent season, God's goal for us, success for us, is for us to look more and more like Him. So then having said all of that about Jesus, Zechariah now says something about John. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. He's saying, listen, the reason that you've been born, John, and it is a great privilege, is to get your ministry up and running just before the ministry of Jesus. And here's what the practical effect of your ministry will do. It will be to till the soils of the hearts of God's people, spiritually speaking, in preparation for the seed of the gospel that Jesus will come right behind you with and plant. It's a beautiful, amazing privilege. And all of this will happen, he says, because of the tender mercy of our God. If God seems harsh to you, read that. Reflect on that. His mercies are tender. All of this will happen, he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby, meaning as an expression of that tender mercy, the what? Because here's the image. The sunrise shall visit us from on high, and to do what? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so just like Zechariah wasn't talking about the literal horn on an animal when he talked about Jesus being the horn of salvation, here again he's using an image. He's calling Jesus the sunrise, the one who comes. He comes from us, from, or to us from on high and he gives us light. He visits us. It's an emblem and it's an image and it's an image that works. I mean, if you think about the literal sun in the sky... Well, from our vantage point on planet Earth, every single day we watch it die, what I'm going to call a figural death. It descends down into the horizon. It looks like it's sinking into the Earth. The light of the world, which is the sun in the sky, is extinguished for a season of time then, is it not? And then it comes up the next day. It rises figurally. It ascends up into the heavens. And it chases away the darkness. It fills the world with light. Well, just think about that in terms of the life of Christ. He suffers and dies a literal death and he's buried. Oh, incidentally, he calls himself the light of the world. But the light of the world is extinguished for a time, is it not? Until the next, well, until the morning of the third day. When he literally rises and then in the narrative ascends into heaven. And he fills this world with a biblical light for all who believe. So then what is that? What is light in the Bible? Because in light, we find longings, and for that matter, what is darkness? Because that helps too. Well, first of all, light in the Bible is the creative gift of God. You know, you open the Bible to the first page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, but then what did they look like? They were dark, they were dead, they were formless, they were void until God speaks His first creative words. And what are they? Let there be light. And everything begins to change. Paul grabs hold of that in the New Testament. He says, by the way, that's the way it works with our hearts. They are dark and they are dead. They're formless. It means it's chaotic. It's disordered. They're void. That's a term meaning emptiness. He comes to us in our darkness, in our deadness, in our chaos, in our emptiness. And then he shines by his spirit, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Everything begins to change. 
And so then if light is creative, darkness is decreative. If light is constructive, darkness is destructive. If light brings order, darkness brings disorder. If light makes one full, brings fullness, darkness is associated with being empty. So you play through that. You know, you soberly evaluate your life. You're going, all right, creative, decreative, constructive, destructive, ordered, disordered. That's a curious holiday question, isn't it? Full, empty. So Jesus is the light. It's the creative gift of God, secondly. Light in the Bible is given specifically, and I love this, to rule over darkness. It's powerful over the darkness. That's its purpose. That's physical and that's spiritual too. And so again, open the Bible, first few pages. God makes the sun to rule over the day and the moon to rule over the night. But how does it rule over the day and night? Specifically how? By filling it with light, by chasing away its darkness. And the practical effect of that is what? It gives to us sight. Darkness blinds us. We can't see. It's why we trip over shoes that are next to our bed when we get up in the middle of the night. It's why we, you know, bump into things. We don't know exactly where we're going. We we can't see what's in front of us. We're subject to whatever perils lie before us in the darkness that we are, because of the darkness, completely blind to, which is how a lot of us feel in life at times. It's like, hey, man, I mean, we even say this, I'm flying blind. What does that mean? It means I know I'm going somewhere. I just don't know where. I don't know how fast. I don't know when I'm going to get there. And I don't know why I keep falling into all of these things and tripping over all this stuff and seemingly just continue to get injured. Christ is the light. And He gives to us as well the light of His Word. David says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's directional. It's revealing. It's safeguarding. Makes all the difference. Thirdly, light in the Bible is associated with God's presence. And we see that in the pillar of fire that the people of Israel followed around in the desert at night. We see that in the luminous cloud, this glory of the Lord, which envelops Mount Sinai and fills the temple. It's associated with God's presence. Darkness is associated with God's absence, or really, more specifically, it's associated with God's judgment. Go look through all the judgment stories in the Bible and watch for darkness. It's everywhere. All right, let me give you the rest of the list. Light in the Bible represents that which is pure, darkness that which is impure. It represents that which is true, darkness that which is untrue. Light represents wisdom and understanding, darkness, foolishness, and ignorance. Light represents the favor of God. Darkness represents His disfavor. Light brings joy. Darkness brings sorrow. And then, of course, light in the Bible and in physical life as well is necessary for life. Darkness, on the other hand, is the harbinger of death. My goodness, what a Savior, Zechariah, in his nine months of silence, the last three of which he spent with the Christ child living within his own home, has now discovered and is here proclaiming to us, well, that Jesus is. He is a horn of salvation who delivers us physically and spiritually, either now or in the end, from all of our enemies, no matter what they may be, and from the hands of all who hate us, and He is a light who chases away the darkness, bringing order, fullness, sight, safety, purity, truth, wisdom, understanding, the presence of God, the favor of God, the eternal 
life of God as well. To all who believe, it's like Zechariah breaks out of his nine months of quiet and he comes and says to us, listen, you know, I I don't know what all your longings are and I don't know how you're trying to satisfy them, but I do know this. Jesus is the answer. That's the message. So I'm going to close by asking you the same questions I've been asking every week. Question number one, what are you longing for right now? It's on your list. Question number two, are you actually looking to God to satisfy those longings? To which I would add today, I mean, what do your fears say? And what does your ability or inability to rejoice say? Because Zechariah doesn't see the fulfillment of all of this stuff. Zechariah is a first century Jewish guy. There's really nothing enviable about that. That was a hard thing to be. Oh, he knows that Jesus has come. He knows what Jesus will do, but in his lifetime, he's like Abraham. He sees it from heaven, yet he rejoices now. Even if we don't get all of our longings satisfied in this life, we can still rejoice knowing that in Jesus, it is as good as done for us. And here's why. Because God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we come to worship a God who is unlimited, unlimited in his goodness, unlimited in his power, unlimited in his wisdom and in his love. Lord, you are not limited by the things of this world, not even by our death. You fulfill your promises as evidenced in Jesus. God, let us bring our longings to you and let us confess them for what they are, a longing for Jesus. And Lord, by your grace, let us be satisfied completely in him and inspire in our hearts the ability, indeed, the undeniable urge to sing. We praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.